BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at SupChina.com. We've got reported stories, editorials, regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It's been an eventful couple of weeks for those of us concerned about the future of U.S.-China climate cooperation. Indeed, for any of us who are concerned about global warming and the future of the damn planet. Uh, Last week, President Biden's special envoy on climate, John Kerry, traveled to China where he met with his counterpart, Xi Jinping, in Shanghai. The two sides put out a joint statement that might not have contained anything earth-shattering, but that, given the state of the relationship overall, produced shivers of pleasure in me. Not going to lie, it was like a cool drink of water to a man dying of thirst. At the Boao Forum on Tuesday, while Chinese President Xi Jinping didn't make any specific commitments on carbon emissions reductions, he did use words like green and sustainable many, many, many times in his speech. That speech captured the particular challenge, I think, that we were talking about today, centering as it did both on the urgent need for, on the one hand, addressing climate change and on China's increasingly assertive, let's call it refusal, on the other to acquiesce to an international order that is totally dominated by a hegemonic United States. So, as we record this episode, the Leaders' Summit on Climate, a virtual summit hosted by the U.S., is in its second day. Uh, Xi Jinping is also taking part in that summit, of course, and in remarks on the first day, uh, which was yesterday, pledged to strictly limit increases in coal consumption over the period of the uh, current five-year plan while reiterating a pledge made to the UN General Assembly last year to achieve carbon neutrality by 2060. So joining me to discuss the fate of Sino-American climate cooperation are two leading experts on the subject. Let me first introduce Angel Xu, who recently joined the faculty here at, in Chapel Hill at the University of North Carolina as assistant professor in the Public Policy Department and Energy, Environment, and Ecology program. She is the founder and director of the Data-Driven Enviro Policy Lab, an interdisciplinary research group that innovates and applies quantitative approaches to pressing environmental issues. Her research focuses on uh, the intersection of science and policy, uh, the use of data-driven approaches uh, to environmental sustainability, particularly in climate change and energy, urbanization, and air quality. She joins us on Seneca for the first time. Welcome, Angel. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much, Kaiser, for having me. It's weird that, you know, I've seen you in Davos, I've seen you in New York, I've seen you in Dalian and in Tianjin. We keep running into each other everywhere but the town that we both live in. That's right. Um, But hopefully once COVID passes, we can meet in person. I've got my shots. So yeah, I'm, me I'm too. Up. I'm fully all vaccinated. Right, all right. So yeah, let's get together. We'll make a date. All right. Happily do. And we can t- talk about your real estate woes here. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> okay, also joining us is an old friend of the show, Alex Wong. Alex is professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles School of Law, and he's a leading expert on environmental law and the law and politics of China. Uh, he was also a uh, rock guitarist in the city of Wuhan back in the <laughs> early 90s. We have that in common, too. Uh, Alex was a senior attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC, based in Beijing, uh, and the founding director of the NRDC's China Environmental Law and Governance Project. Uh, aside from being you know, a former rock musician like me, he, uh, well, I don't have this in common with you, but you were best known probably as having been Jeremy Goldhorn's former <laughs> landlord. In that Beijing. is true. That is a you weird are, yeah. connection we have. Yeah, it is. Alex, welcome back, man. How yeah, are you? Uh, thanks for having me, Kaiser. Okay, so let's let's jump right in and start with uh, recent events, uh, especially Kerry's mission to China, the joint statement that came out of that, uh, and maybe what we've heard so far from the Leaders' Summit on climate from from both Joe Biden and from Xi Jinping. Angel, I want to get your sense first of what came of this meeting uh, between John Kerry and Xi Jinhua. Uh, maybe first, before we do that, let's give give people an idea of the two principles here. I think we're all familiar with who John Kerry is. I think many of our listeners know who Xie Jinhua is. But let's talk about Xie and his relative stature in China, uh, some of the, the, the salient biographical information on him. Um, Angel, do you want to do that? I mean, if you don't know his bio as well, we can throw that to Alex. But <laughs> No, I'd be happy to. Yeah, yeah Xie Jinhua is um, somewhat the grandfather of China's climate policy. And so he's been a just godlike figure when it comes to formulating China's climate policy and being the lead negotiator for the Chinese negotiating team at many of these critical summits. And so he just is uh, really well known both within China and also globally and was really instrumental in shepherding China's climate policy from its very early days where China very much played a defensive player in some of these negotiations uh, to mm-hmm. the to where we see them now, which is really stepping forward and becoming a global leader on climate change. And so he had basically hopped into retirement. So he was leading um, right. a uh, research institute at Tsinghua, which is what a lot of former diplomats and, and public figures go to do after they retire. And so he was sitting comfortably in retirement until he got the tap on the shoulder to come back and be in and Re, become reinstated as China's climate envoy. And so I think that really signals the um, importance that China is placing on climate change and also to try to reinvigorate the relationship with uh, the United States because uh, Minister Xi Jinhua has a historic friendly relationship with John Kerry and that was really instrumental in cementing the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China in the lead up to the Paris Agreement. And so it was largely considered that the U.S.-China bilateral relationship on climate was was fundamental to securing global consensus on the Paris Accord. Mm-hmm. And so to have Xi Jinhua back into that position, I think just really, I think was probably a breath of fresh air for John Kerry and the Americans and saying, okay, well, uh, they're open to having us re-engage on this issue and to reestablish this really critical relationship. So that's kind of where I see the uh, relationship. But yeah, Xi Jinhua is always a really friendly face to see at negotiations. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I've run into him at every climate conference that I've been to, and um, he's just really approachable and got a great smile, just a wonderful warmth. And unlike some of the other Chinese negotiator, he's not like in the trenches in, in, in the negotiating rooms, like drafting the deal. I mean, he's really the figurehead of the Chinese delegation. And mm-hmm. uh, so he's often sitting in the room and listening to Chinese scientists present the latest research on China's emissions trading scheme or China's thinking on green cities. And so he's, he's just um, one of these figures that uh, I think has just become so uh, symbolic of China's climate policy. It's kind of hard to think about these critical times without him at the helm. And so I I don't know if Alex um, has a, a different viewpoint, but yeah, I mean, I think definitely having him back in the driver's seat is is, is a welcome, um, yeah, uh, return. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Hey, uh, but I just want to stay with you for a second here, uh, Angel. What did you think of, of the, uh, the joint communique that came out? Yeah, I mean, I, as um, you mentioned, there wasn't really anything earth shattering that came out of that that communication. I think the main point is um, the fact but we that don't want earth shattering; we want earth healing. <laughs> that's right? right. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, exactly. Earth healing um, types of comments. I think the most important piece was for John Kerry to come into these conversations with humility and recognizing that a lot of trust was lost the last four years with not having the United States engaged at an international level, with President Trump withdrawing from the Paris 
Paris Climate Agreement and reversing a lot of the critical pieces of the U.S.'s climate policy. And so I think um, what was really important is just in the spirit of reestablishing those connections and this really important relationship. And then, Alex, what about you? What did you think? Was there an expectation that there would be maybe more aggressive targets announced? Is there anything that you were hoping for in the joint statement that you didn't hear? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, thanks for that question. I, you know, first, uh, uh, I wanted to add a little bit something on, on Xie, just to remind us that, you know, like many Chinese officials, he's been in this game for a really long time. He was formerly the head of the environmental agency, uh, dating back to the late uh, 90s. And uh, people might recall that he had to resign after a, a chemical spill around 2005, if I recall correctly. In Jilin or something. Yeah, and right. then he came back into the picture as uh, vice chairman at uh, NDRC, the uh, Economic Planning Agency, and then became this leader in uh, in uh, climate negotiations and is, a, by all accounts, a very talented and very effective uh, figure. But on, you know, on the NDRC, joint, not to be confused with NRDC. Uh, that, that's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, but on the on the joint statement, I I think uh, I don't I don't think anyone expected uh, a, a lot to come out of the joint statement. And I think what what it is 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 an initial engagement by uh, two very senior and sophisticated diplomats who have known each other for a long time. And there had been a lot of tough talk from the governments in the months prior to that. And this was a nice way to just sort of say, on this particular issue, let's try to find ways to work together. And, you know, the the language is pretty soft and it's about continuing discussions and things like that. But it had signals that suggest that there might be other things to come. So it's, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, how much will the countries raise their ambition in the run-up to Glasgow, all right? There's language suggesting that they're both attempting to enhance action uh, uh, in this decade, for example, you know, before 2030. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also language about working together to maximize the transition uh, from fossil fuels to clean tech in developing countries. So that's right. those are things that we uh, people all care about, but just initial, you know, kind of soft language, but, you know, not not bad, but uh, nothing, again, nothing earth shattering, right? We'll dig into both of those issues, uh, both uh, how to sort of nudge developing countries, how, what the United States and China can do to move them toward, uh, you know, less carbon intensive development, and, uh, you know, the other issues that you, you brought up. But I want to ask first about uh, the Leaders Summit on Climate uh, and what you thought of that. Uh, the U.S. has now committed itself to what I think is a very ambitious target, uh, uh, having emissions by 2030 from 20, 2005 levels. Give us a sense of, of how ambitious or aggressive that goal actually is. I, I don't think that, uh, I mean, we, you know, what's the baseline? What was the earlier target and, and where have we come from there? So, If we look at the science of climate change, and in particular, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change 2018 report on 1.5 degrees Celsius. So before the IPCC came out with this report, there wasn't really a sense of what it would take to hit this 1.5 degrees Celsius target. The models were not fully developed yet. And so negotiators put this aspirational goal into the Paris Agreement in 2015 without having the science and the modeling to actually know what that would entail from countries. And so it was really critical for science to play a little bit of catch up and to say, okay, this is what's really needed. And so once that report came out, the goalposts became really clear. We have to decarbonize. We have to reach net zero emissions by 2050. In order to get that, we have to have global emissions by 2030. And so for the U.S. to align the NDC with those goalposts, I think is absolutely critical because it shows that we're actually aligning our commitments with the science for what we need, what needs to happen globally in order to get to that net zero target. So I think that's really critical. The IPCC report came out in what year? What in was 2018, that yeah. So 2018, in September right. so of 2018. That wouldn't have happened in, in between 2018 and 2020, obviously. Right. right. But, yeah, exactly. So it's basically what we've done is we're, we're basically taking on board what the IPCC report said. It's got to be no, not too... Two degrees, 1.5 degrees, and we've got to have carbon emissions by 2030. Exactly. And so right. that's that really critical midterm target to get us to net zero emissions by 2050. And so now more than 127 national governments around the world have also committed to net zero targets. And so that's really encouraging because we need every country around the world, whether they're developed or developing, to align their commitments with those goals if we want to globally achieve 
decarbonization and avoid 1.5 degrees Celsius of global temperature rise. So I think from that perspective, it was really encouraging, especially observing and watching climate policy the last uh, decade or so. And there hasn't really been a lot of traction on the U.S. side to actually do something like that. So I, I was really excited and impressed that President Biden went ahead and made that commitment of 50 to 52 percent reduction from 2005 levels. And of course, you're going to get critics that come out and say, oh, but the Europeans are all adopting a 1990 baseline. And if the U.S. does that, then the target looks less ambitious because it's only a 43 percent reduction from 1990 right. levels. And so I think we can quibble and we can go back and forth and say whether or not it's ambitious or unambitious. But I think at this point, at least for somebody who's been following climate policy and studying it for such a long time, I think that having something that is a clear signal and a clear policy goal in place, I think that's really momentous. And um, so so I was really encouraged by that. So Alex, Xi Jinping also gave a speech yesterday. Did he have anything that you, you think matched in terms of its ambition uh, what what President Biden laid out? Yeah, so everyone's been evaluating what he he said yesterday. So he talked about you know you mentioned the target the the language uh, earlier on, and he talked about strictly controlling coal and uh, but no numbers around it, right? And a phase down in the fifteenth five year plan. So nothing, uh, no numbers, but certainly as a political signal on the on the positive side, people have said, well, look, this is first time at this level that we have Xi Jinping talking about. Uh, phasing down coal. So that's an important signal. But uh, the other way to look at it is, look, if you, you already had this uh, peaking target and for China to m meet that peaking target, inevitably this would have to happen on coal. So a lot of the debate is about how aggressive these targets are. And the advocates, environmental advocates, would like to see all of this accelerated. And people believe that these things can be accelerated, for example, peaking by 2025, uh, you know, stopping coal now and starting to reduce coal now. Uh, these these sorts of things are uh, are are what is being uh, debated. I, th I think the other aspect of what she said yesterday, you know, there, there's the issue of of what China is doing on the substance of climate uh, action, and there's also the the element of kind of I guess international uh, reputation or image making and the right. diplomatic side of this, right? And so there's clearly an effort by the U.S. and China to try to uh, jockey for the mantle of leadership, right? And so the, the leader summit is is obviously an attempt by the U.S. to reassert its leadership on the, the stage. And then there's the decision on China's side is, you know, how much do they sort of play into that, that sort of dynamic, right? And uh, there are signs that China has wanted to not make their biggest announcements at a U.S.-led party, in, in in a sense, right? So yeah, you saw last it. year with the carbon neutrality announcement in uh, September. You know that was uh, you know the timing of that is probably no accident, right? We, we you sort of know that what Biden's climate actions are likely to be, and so they sort of controlled the agenda and really reshaped the global discussions on climate change by making that announcement. And uh, the sense is at this meeting, they probably don't want to use this platform as the one to make another major announcement. So that's maybe one, uh, I, I would say it's an optimistic uh, take mm -hmm, on it because mm -hmm. maybe it means that at COP26 or somewhere uh, later, something more ambitious will come. But that, that sure. remains to be seen. Maybe China will host its own climate leaders summit. And uh, <laughs> Angel, you, you talked yesterday on a panel uh, that the National Committee put on about the significance of the C's announcements at the UN General Assembly uh, last year. The context is that you were saying that up until you know quite recently, I've mm -hmm. talked about this with Alex as well. The Chinese position was still that developed countries, you know, which are responsible for the majority of extant greenhouse gas, it stays in the atmosphere for thirty years. You know, despite the fact that China is now the biggest emitter. Uh, they should still take the lead and they should shoulder the real burden. And that's why, you know, the peak carbon and carbon neutral goals were, were pretty surprising and, and maybe, you know, delighting. Uh, was this, though, this is my question to you. Was this the result, ironically, of the U.S. abdication of leadership on climate during the Trump years? Was this China kind of wrestling for that mantle? And I mean, if so, I mean, Christ, this is the kind of, of arm wrestling that I applaud, right? I mean, this is what we want. <laughs> Yeah, this I is mean, the kind of competition. 
Yeah, I, I don't know if um, during the last four years, China was really wrestling for the mantle of leadership on, on global climate. It just climate. kind of fell into its it lap. It kind of yeah. fell, exactly. <laughs> I think that there was a main pillar that the U.S. was resting on in terms of climate leadership, and then it kind of it fell into, into China unwillingly. And so, I mean, yeah, China, it's been really interesting watching them evolve in global climate change governance because they certainly have held steadfastly to this idea of common but differentiated responsibilities that's right. enshrined in the UN Framework Paris. Convention on Climate yeah. Change, right? And the Paris Agreement and its predecessor, the Kyoto Protocol, which still is the only legally binding treaty on climate change. And, and certainly- Which the United States still never signed, right? That's right, exactly. And China did. And um, so they, they've always said, developed countries, it's their historic responsibility, and they should be the ones taking the lead on climate change. We have a right to develop. We still have a GDP per capita of less than 9,000 US dollars per person. We have huge poverty um, problems that we still need to resolve. We need to lift millions of people out of abject poverty. And so we have a right to continue to develop our economy and to emit carbon emissions. And um, many times I feel like every time I uh, see my friends in the who are Chinese negotiators on climate change in Beijing or in other fora, I always ask them, well, what do you think? Is China ready? And they always, they it's so funny. They always demur and they always say, no, 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 we are, are not leaders. We still have so much to learn from the West and from developed countries on climate climate change. We're just feeling like we're doing our part. And so that's what made this bombshell announcement by President Xi Jinping at the UN General Assembly so significant because they stepped out and and at a forum that's not normally, uh, uh, I guess, um, the place that you would make such a momentous announcement on climate change. And they unilaterally did it. And, and normally when China makes any type of announcement on climate change, it's multilaterally within a forum like the UNFCCC or with bilateral um, agreements like the United States, for example. And so for them to just come out and say, we're going to commit to carbon neutrality, the first developing country to do so, that was really momentous. And so I think despite what the Chinese leadership might say, I think that they are de facto the leader on climate change, uh, especially if you look at all the other metrics by which they're leading in terms of clean energy. And so, yeah, it was really interesting to see them step out and, and make this really momentous statement. That's great. You say the UN General Assembly usually isn't a forum at which these sorts of announcements are made, but it's almost become one. I, I feel like the UN General Assembly, because of there's so many events that are convened in that same week of the UNGA in New York, the World Economic Forum always does one. It's almost become expected. And I, I think, that I, again, this is a really good thing. Again, the kind of development that I, I certainly applaud. So we've been talking a little bit about, uh, about competition uh, and this is this is a big focus, I think, for a lot of our thinking these days. I've seen it talked about in, in, in many venues, not the least of which, of course, is Alex's uh, recent piece that you authored. Um, in his opening remarks, President Biden framed progress on climate very much in terms of competition, uh, saying that you know the countries who remake their economies, who invest in a clean energy future, they're the ones who are going to quote win the good jobs of tomorrow and be more competitive. And he said. So let's run that race. I thought that was interesting that he framed it in terms of that. This this race is a question that, you know, I think again a lot of us have been thinking about, which is how necessary in fact is cooperation between the world's two largest emitters? I mean, can competition in fact be harnessed to accelerate, you know, emissions reductions, uh, to move major countries more quickly toward carbon neutrality? I mean, Alex, you describe a scenario of constructive competition in which each country actually pursues national self-interest, but the net result is, you know, significant improvement in, in terms of carbon emissions. And you write in that paper, um, the dynamics surrounding climate change are evolving ways that support unilateral action motivated by national self-interest rather than collective action requiring alliance building. Uh, this sounds like, uh, you know, a race to the top, a positive some idea that, you know, the thing that Biden's alluding to. So let, let's unpack that approach a bit. Does this happen without coordination or uh, with, in the absence of, of guardrails or constraints on competition? Right. Yes, yes. So there's a lot to unpack there. I think the, the paper that I, I wrote that you referenced was, a, was in some ways a reaction to the media framing on this, which 
was often saying, you know, the, the, the world cannot solve climate change without U.S. and China cooperation. And then most of these articles would never really say exactly what that cooperation meant and and why the cooperation piece of it was uh, so essential. I mean, it's clear that U.S. and China action on climate change are necessary right? because they're the account collectively account for about 45 percent of uh, global emissions. But the, the question was, was cooperation the key? And so you know, what did people have in mind? You know, in part, they had in mind what Angel has already alluded to, which was the pre uh, Paris Agreement cooperation, which was kind mm-hmm. of uh, presidential joint announcements, right? And that was necessary before the Paris Agreement because you had to show that the biggest emitters were on board and then that got everyone uh, else on board, right? So that was necessary. But arguably, that's a little bit less essential these days now that you have the agreement and, and the goal is, you know, how can you defeat the domestic opposition to climate change? And, and, and you know, there's a lot more uh, domestic uh, focus on on implementation, now and and the other thing that people might have had in mind when they talked about cooperation is the sense of a, a collective action or a free rider problem. You know, this goes way back. Like the opposition in the U.S. to climate action was always often framed in terms of, well, why should we do something if large emitters like China are not doing something right? So this was right. the very reason that the U.S. didn't sign on to the Kyoto Protocol. You know, almost all of the senators in the late '90s signed on and said, look, we're not going to move unless China moves, essentially, right? And right. so that, there was the sense that, well, they were going to take advantage of us if we moved. And so what I what I try to raise in the piece is that the dynamics are shifting and we're starting to think of climate action as an opportunity uh, in a variety of ways, right? So there's the economic opportunities. We, we know that climate action requires dramatic transformations of energy, transportation, buildings, and all of those things are uh, business opportunities. There's money to be made. There's innovation uh, to be had. Uh, and so, uh, you know, China has explicitly framed a lot of its economic policy around these types of things. Made in 2025, strategic emerging industries have included the clean tech industries because they're industries without incumbents that are kind of dominating the stage and you can come in with a lot of support and and dominate those the u.s is now coming somewhat late to the game you know i think biden is talking in i think industrial policy is still somewhat of a dirty word in the united states but in, in essence we're talking about a form of industrial policy which is really just state support for things that produce good things for Americans, right? With the, you know, yeah. I'm a, a, a full-on supporter of uh, the, those types of uh, approaches. And so I, I think given these dynamics, what what I talk about in the paper is just that I think there are three ways in which competition could be constructive going forward. One is those competitions over the economic opportunities of the clean tech industries. Two is competition over U.S. and China relations with other countries, right? So can you compete for alliances and support, which has much broader implications, right? So, sort of votes in the UN, they are, they, they are economic opportunities themselves for the US and China. And there, there's lots of ways in which the US and China are trying to fight for the favor of other countries. And so through development aid and uh, you know, financing for clean tech, and, and yesterday by, uh, the Biden administration announced a plan on green international finance. Uh, and China has been talking about greening the Belt and Road Initiative, and uh, we want to see more details on on that. And yeah, that, let's stick down on that in yeah, a second. Yeah, um, and that, and I think just to, to quickly mention the third area is this kind of reputational competition, right? So uh, this used to be kind of below the surface, but now it's very much on the on the surface. The leaders are sort of saying, look. Uh, you know, we we saw this at the Alaska meeting, right? Uh, in that very contentious public portion of that meeting, where the leaders were very much saying, "Look," the Chinese leader said, "Look, we don't uh, think that the world thinks as highly of you as you think uh, of yourselves," <laughs> right? And right. the U.S. is talking, you know, Biden is talking about making democracy work again. So there is this somewhat vague and high level competition, but I think it does matter in some ways in how aggressively the countries will push forward on, on this. And the, the positive side of it is that you could imagine these competitive dynamics helping to break through some of the, uh, the blockages domestic. Sure. 
But there, there are, you know, I have misgivings. I mean, I wonder if, Angel, you have any misgivings about this competition approach. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it does make some sense to me, but uh, maybe it's the best that we can hope for given the, the circumstances. But on the other hand, it sounds to me a bit much like, you know, kind of neoliberal fairy tale, you know, where <laughs> the, the market will solve everything. You know, all competition is always good. I mean, I suppose the real question is, I mean, if we insist on viewing everything in this bilateral relationship as we do now through this lens of national security, are we going to be able to prevent competition with China from being framed again, you know, in terms of competition even in this? Uh, I mean, I just read Bob Menendez's press release around the Strategic Competition Act, uh, which just, you know, came out of Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And the language he deploys is just bonkers by my lights. I mean, it makes me just worried that absent any proactive push for collaboration, that competition is just going to spill its banks immediately. It's going to become this all-consuming thing. It's going to be all about national security. China is going to be viewed as this, you know, uh, existential threat. And I-, I would like to see something prevent the kind of um, arms racing that that I worry about. Um, and that would, I mean, that's that's the, the worst thing possible, right? I mean, I, I've seen studies about uh, what. Uh, the defense industry does. I mean, it's it's not exactly a green industry, right? Um, the the thinking that underlies this whole approach to competition, it it seems like it's not of that just a friendly foot race and uh, you know positive sum. So that's what I worry about. About um, Angel, what's your your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Alex. I think that the framing of constructive competition, I think this is a new brand of competition that I don't think is exactly as antagonistic and dangerous and threatening as, Kaiser, what you've just um, articulated. I mean, so in in our analysis, so I wrote a paper with Debbie Seligson, who is also a good friend of yours, um, and she teaches at Villanova University. So in our paper for the Penn Project on the future of U.S.-China climate relations, we also had a similar argument where we said, yes, cooperation is necessary. But exactly as Alex said, I think people just take that as a given without really interrogating, well, specifically, what does that mean? And collaboration how and collaboration on what specifically and to what aim? And so just vaguely saying, oh, we need to cooperate, I think is just, again, just empty platitudes and doesn't really get us anywhere. And we all know that this type of collaboration can be very protracted. It can be very long and arduous. I mean, just like look at the Global Framework Convention on Climate Change and how long it it took to get the Paris Agreement. Uh, I I think uh, Alex and I were both in the trenches of the two 2009 Copenhagen negotiations where we saw the height of U.S. and and China tensions on climate change. And they were supposed to have a new deal. We were supposed to have a new deal then. And it just got punted 60 years down the line to Paris. And so when you try to collaborate on everything, I mean, I think it's really important for process and and for for all these things that we need to cooperate on on a global problem like climate change, but it can be very slow. So I think these things need to happen in parallel. We need to continue to have these conversations on collaboration and get really specific about what that means. But then at the same time, I think the competition element is really helpful, especially I think galvanizing action in the United States. And so what Debbie and I argue in this paper is actually we think this Green New Deal framing, which in the Chinese context, I don't think has the same type of translation and the same type of salient. So we have to think about what that actually looks like. But exactly trying to place um, economic recovery, economic development at the core of climate change policy. So bringing the two together. And then this is an area where we argue both sides could really collaborate and learn from each other. So for example, China already manufactures two thirds of the world's solar photovoltaic, solar PV. And so this is an area where the United States, even if we wanted to jumpstart our clean energy sector and our solar PV manufacturing capacity today, it just would not be possible. And so this is an area where we simply cannot compete directly with China at this time and point. But I feel like that's what's being sold, though. I mean, I think that what's being sold is is this idea that we're going to reduplicate the entire sort of supply chain uh, that China now kind of dominates, whether it's in photovoltaics or it's in wind turbines or in battery and storage. I mean, uh, isn't that I mean, doesn't that redundancy? Wouldn't that be just very ungreen? I mean, I, I understand the case for competition being able to drive positive outcomes, but maybe collaboration isn't the right word. I'm looking for a coordination, though. I mean. Mm-hmm. And and I I just even I have a worry that in the current political climate, even that kind of division of labor, this sort of ceding to China that you will manufacture the PV, you will you know go on, and we're just going to buy that, and then uh, you know uh, we'll we'll be further downstream in the supply chain from you. Um, I worry though that, that that even that kind of an arrangement is politically difficult right now. 
Is right. that your yes. sense? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think I think right now it is really difficult. And um, but yeah, this is kind of what I I was I mean in terms of how we can both collaborate and and compete. But yeah, so we can't create our clean energy manufacturing sector overnight. But I think for President Biden to start to put in that kind of framework and start to invest and provide the right incentives and subsidies and infusion of financial capital into that development in the United States, I think that's a good thing, and it'll help the United States become more climate resilient in the long term. But yeah, in the short term, I think we do need to recognize the reality of the situation, which is the fact that China has all this manufacturing capacity. They've directly led to driving down the cost of many of these technologies. And so they have the distinct competitive advantage. And so I think in the short term, we're going to have to work with China to source a lot of the components for us to be able to implement a lot of these technologies. But yeah, they're becoming, there are sticky um, geopolitical realities um, that I think that the United States is also going to have to confront. And so that's some of what we discussed yesterday in the National Committee panel. But um, one of the concerns that I know a lot of U.S. policymakers have is the fact that a lot of the, the, the silicate is actually produced in Xinjiang, and that's a core component of solar PV. So right. what happens? Can Is that an area where we can realistically collaborate right now, considering the concerns of human rights violations that the United States has uh, in Xinjiang? And so I think that it, it's going to be really tricky, but that's why I think that that means we need to actually become really clear about what collaboration actually means and the areas in which collaboration clearly makes sense. And then, but I think overall, just the framing of competition is helpful in the U.S. context. And if it gets people really excited and it gets them galvanized and uh, wanting to win or try to compete in this clean energy race, I think it will help to inspire this race to the top. So just now we flicked at two things that I want to bring up and, and, and drill down on in a little more detail, uh, things that I put a pin in. One was, Alex, you talked a little bit about um, you know, the criticism of the carbon footprint of the Belt and Road Initiative, how Chinese money has been funding a lot of coal-fired power plants and other really you know carbon-intensive or environmentally destructive projects. Um, this is one, one of the things. And the other is, Angel talked about you know, a Green New Deal approach. And uh, she talks about that a lot in her paper with Deb Seligson, uh, who is, uh, as, as she said, she, Deb was on the show recently. I don't know if you heard uh, t- talking about something entirely unrelated, but it was great. Uh, she, she's, she's brilliant. Uh, Alex, this is a dimension that you think Chinese, uh, U.S.-China competition can actually yield positive results, right? And a- actually, Angel, you echoed this idea on the National Committee panel yesterday. It's pretty straightforward how this would work in principle that we you know we offer a greener financing alternative. Uh, but how much of an appetite is there in D.C. right now for actually creating you know new international development programs on that scale? Do they piggyback on existing programs? Do we just sort of tweak them? And and do we actually have the capacity to offer something more appealing than what China has been selling? I mean, we we don't exactly have a good track record for for creating good infrastructure quickly he, even here at home i mean my wife is is routinely astonished at the slow progress of every building project that she's seen uh here you know where we live or anywhere up and down the east coast that, that we've looked at it's just it's it's kind of you know astonishing what what's going to make uh what what do we offer besides financing i mean do you know china doesn't just offer financing right they offer it goes way beyond that. I mean, yeah, I mean, there, there's so, a lot in your your question there, Kaiser. I mean, so, yeah, so I think a, <laughs> you know, a, a few aspects of this. I mean, one there, there's obviously the issue of demand from developing countries. What do they want, right? So, when we're talking about greening the BRI, there is a dynamic here that the the local host countries are always also asking for uh, the dirtier things, and so part of the story is uh, a global effort to convince countries that they can develop uh, without going the kind of pollute first and then clean up later route, right? Right. And there are dynamics that are changing, right? Renewable energy is just becoming much cheaper than before, right? So this idea that going to renewable energy is the more expensive option is just not true in some places, right? And so I think we have to recognize that first. And so can developing countries develop first by uh, putting in substantial amounts of renewable energy? I think that is... Uh, is absolutely possible, and we need to figure out how to how to do this, right? Actually, just quick shout out to your ex colleague Barbara Finnamore. She was on this show telling me that seventy percent of the people in the world now live in a country where renewable energy is actually cheaper uh, per kilowatt or per, per you yeah. Know, so, so I mean, I, I think the more people really need to recognize that that shift, and I think 
you know, part of what's uh, going on with the, these outbound investments is there's a lot of uh, money to be made and kind of economic interests at stake in the exports, both from China and from the United States, right? So China's gotten mm-hmm. a lot of attention for its coal exports. The United States is exporting a lot of natural gas right now, right? And so that's been been an issue. You know, my my old my colleagues at NRDC have been uh, on this issue, and so both countries are going to have to figure out how they deal with those dynamics uh, right. and uh, shift away from that and shift money to uh, to funding uh, renewables. Uh, but but you know the the shift there is uh, you know mirrors the challenges of the shift domestically, which is you have very powerful interests invested in the old ways of doing things, and you kind of have new uh, upstarts in in the the cleaner industries, and you need a lot more support there to to make make it happen. So do do current lending institutions uh, are are they up to the task? I mean, or, or do we need to create new institutions specifically for green finance? Yeah, Angel, I don't know if you have thoughts on this. I mean, I, I think the existing institutions can uh, make a lot of progress by putting bans on financing of uh, fossil fuels, for example. Sure. Uh, you know, if you're going to finance anything that is not carbon free, uh, you know, to have very strict limits on what you can finance and uh, very uh, strict efficiency standards and these types of things. So, yeah, I mean, I think, Kaiser, you picked up on a really important point, which is the fact that financial institutions can be doing so much more on climate change. So a, mm-hmm. a major strand of my own research is looking at the role of private sector actors and subnational actors in global climate change mitigation. And I will tell you that this is one area that has really lagged behind, which is the financial institutions. First uh-huh. of all, if you're a private financer, you have no uh, no uh, obligation to release transparently information about your investments and the greenness of those portfolios and where you're investing, how many um, of those assets and under management are um, are fossil based, for example. And so that's a huge challenge. And yeah. Um, yeah, even if you're a public development bank, either a, a traditional development bank or a government or a bilateral funding agency, that data is a little bit easier to come by, but still it's really difficult to get a sense of where that money is going, what kinds of projects are being um, financed. And so there has been, I think, relatively more analysis on, on this piece. But yeah, the private sector is just a huge black hole. And um, there have been so many calls for greater transparency, and now financial institutions are making commitments on climate change, their own private commitments, but they're not necessarily uh, disclosing uh, basically the, the what we call scope three or indirect emissions and uh, emissions throughout the supply chain. And so, yeah, it's a major challenge. So yeah, I think absolutely a lot more can be done on the financial sector piece. And it's so hard to get information and data about what they're doing and and how green their investments are. And and so my, I think, more skeptical sense is that not a lot is, is happening and a lot more can be, can be done. Uh, absolutely. And, and China has been talking since the 12th five-year plan about green finance. And we've still been waiting for more details about right. what exactly this means. And I think one of the first times I actually heard Xi Zhenhua speak to this particular point was at a forum last November with Europe. And somebody pushed him on this particular point of how can China claim to become carbon neutral by 2060 if they're still uh, investing heavily in fossil-fired assets overseas and 75% of their investments overseas through their two major development banks are in fossil fuel based assets. And so how that's fundamentally incompatible with a 1.5 degrees Celsius world. And it was the first time I heard Shizuhua say, you're right, this is something that we have to address because it's 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 just leaking carbon from China's borders overseas. And so I mean, I think that now what can be done is is pushing the Chinese government to stop exporting excess coal fire capacity overseas and start exporting some of those green technologies, the solar, the wind to other countries. But yeah, as Alex said, the demand has to be there. And I think as more and more countries start to submit enhanced ambition Paris pledges, and they start to commit to net zero targets themselves, they're going to realize that they can't keep importing this uh, coal-fired uh, electricity, uh, because then they're not going to be able to meet their their goals. And so I think we're, we're starting to see some shift. And I think what's really helpful is uh, the increased ambition of these national pledges that will necessitate adoption of more renewable energy as part of the electricity mix. 
Mm-hmm. It's also worth pointing out, you know, there's a lot of skepticism about whether this kind of transformation happens. But once the economics shift in a certain way, it happens in a sense naturally, right? If you think of like what what's happening in the United States, why is coal where it is right now in the United States? It's not fundamentally about the regulation, right? The, you know, the regulators had to fight in the Supreme Court to say, look, our regulation isn't doing most of the work right? because there was arguments that it was too coercive in a sense. And uh, and what happened was just that natural gas had a, a, a advantage. And so people, you know, it didn't make sense to invest in coal. And so right. Uh, so right now you're seeing these shifts in the renewable energy pricing. And so you can imagine this happening very quickly in a sense. Alex, you closet neoliberal, you. <laughs> okay, so Angel, uh, back to you. In in the memorandum that you endeavor writing, uh, and what I've seen right now is a draft. Uh, you talk about how there's really been a shift in the U.S. away from the kind of cap and trade or even carbon tax approaches that we saw. You know, efforts to implement during the Obama administration, most notably, you know, Waxman Markey, uh, and more toward this Green New Deal thinking, which I'm delighted to see. You know, I mean, even. You know, moderates in in the Democratic Party are very much on board with this. Your paper does, I think, a really great job in laying out why this kind of approach, which focuses, you know, on on winning and on benefits more than on losing and on costs, why that would have a broader appeal. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but you also suggest that this represents a kind of convergence with China's approach, and maybe that's not as immediately intuitive to most people. I would think. I mean, Beijing has had a much more top-down approach. You know, CO2 emissions reductions have been mandated in industrial policy uh, in in, in five-year plans. So what in China's approach do you see as being similar to or at least compatible with Green New Deal thinking? Yeah, and I mean, I think that this is part of the fundamental misunderstanding about China's environmental governance system. And so my PhD dissertation was focused on Chinese environmental governance. And whenever I would tell people, either in China or the United States, that I was studying this topic, they would immediately say, oh, what environmental governance? What environmental policy? And I would say, actually, they have a lot of policies in place, and they are implementing them, and it's really effective. I mean, China, if you look at their track record, has either met or come extremely close or even exceeded every type of climate and energy-related target that it has set for itself. And not many countries can say that. And for example, China has had in place a national climate change policy since 2007, and the U.S. still doesn't have anything in place. And so I think that this is part of the fundamental misunderstanding. People think, oh, well, you have to have a neoliberal approach, right, to uh, some type of climate policy, cap and trade, carbon taxes, and and something like uh, of that type of flavor. But in China, it has been exactly, as you said, developing these top-level policies through the five-year plan, and then passing those targets down to the provinces, to the cities, to the top emitting companies, and applying specific reduction targets, uh, developing standards, for example, for efficiency, and and then achieving their goals that way. And they've been incredibly effective at doing that. And so I think that that's one fundamental misunderstanding that a lot of people have about how China's governance system has worked. And so, I mean, I think you can see that there are a lot of similarities then when you look at it from that perspective with the U.S. And so I mean, uh, the idea that you can place industrial policy at the center and linking sector-specific climate policies with local issues, that can help to provide these direct signals to motivate industrial actors to meet climate change goals. And so that's what we really mean uh, in terms of this, this Green New Deal approach that I think could have a lot of salience, as you mentioned, in both the U.S. context, and that has already had a lot of traction in China. Uh, so so companies have been at the center of, of China's um, energy and climate goals, so they had the top 1,000 energy-consuming enterprises program in the uh, 12th five-year plan and, and the 11th five-year plan, for that matter, that really focused on uh, the top emitters and, and providing them uh, um, infrastructure and, um, and incentives to reduce their emissions and, and direct targets and saying, okay, you have to reduce your emissions by this amount. And that, 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 that proved to be really enormously effective. Um, and so, so I think that, that there's a lot more similarities between the two sides and framing them along this, this, um, this uh, idea of a Green New Deal and developing these winning coalitions, I think, can, um, 
uh, mean that both sides, I think, are not as much as, as different as we think and, and can really um, work together in, in, in really articulating what this means. Just to add something on Angel's point that, you know, I th- think there is an issue of lagging perceptions here, right? There, if you think of China 15 years ago, I think there was a very low policy priority for the environment. There was the sense of the economy kind of trumps environment. But when, if you see the transition since the 11th five-year plan, it has been a sort of pragmatic kind of environment, partially in service of environmental goals, but also in service of economic goals, right? This is to, to uh, the point about, about about, right? thinking about win-wins. And, you know, last five-year plan, you had half of the binding targets be environmental targets. It's not because China is full-on, you know, Sierra Club, right? It's, it's in part <laughs> because these are very important to disfavoring some of the heavy industries and favoring less polluting industries, right? And it was, it was about economic policy as well. What Angel was talking about just now reminded me of something that Jonas Nam um, from Johns Hopkins, who was a co-panelist with you guys yesterday on that national committee thing, uh, he, he talked about how regulatory decisions taken by one country can really reshape the entire global market in positive ways. Um, and that's something that Angel flicked at earlier. Uh, and he gave the example about of, of EVs, about how you know, China's quotas and China's subsidies in that space just really lit a fire for the, for the industry. You know, and it's it's really taking off now globally. Um, can you talk about that and, and uh, how you see the future of transportation shaping up and what China's role is going to be in that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's long been an argument of environmental advocates that uh, good environmental regulation can drive sort of economic opportunities and send market signals to, to companies to produce in greener ways. And so you know, what Jonas was talking about yesterday was how uh, kind of global auto companies have kind of gone in the direction of EVs recently because of largely because of the enormous market in China, right? So China has really been pushing this. And from the Chinese perspective, part of the calculation is that they're trying to build their own EV players. But you can see how that regulation has driven global uh, uh, change on this. And um, so so I think across the board, you want to see uh, stronger environmental uh, regulations that create the markets for um, for uh, greener products. Uh, and this will be in the uh, transportation sector. If you have renewable portfolio standards in the electricity sector, it does you know, similarly drives um, the development of uh, wind and solar and, and batteries and other technologies and those sorts of things. Angel, you and Deb wrote that draft that I've seen before the election, right? That's right. We've had, yeah, we've had a full three months now of Biden We've seen that there's not a whole ton of interest from the White House or the State Department or, you know, justice or anyone else in kind of lowering the overall temperature with Beijing. We still have all the, the tariffs in place. Uh, they've, in fact, I think maybe even ratcheted things up. It's, it's you know, even more febrile, I think, than it was. Are you inclined to want to make at this point any substantial changes to the, the approach that you were advocating in light of you know, maybe the, the 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 closing window on more meaningful coordination or collaboration. I mean, are you drifting toward this? Hey, you know, let's let's compete, and that can be healthy. Are you in that direction as well? Um, I mean, I think that what's really interesting is that you're kind of seeing President Biden adopting a Green New Deal approach, oh, which is sure. what we yeah what we recommended. And so, I mean, he's um, set this very broad goal of decarbonization by 2050 for the United States, and he's focusing on specific sectors and setting targets and infusing financing and capital into them to try to galvanize action on climate change. And so um, a lot of the things that we recommended, so sector-specific policies saying zero emissions vehicles or zero emissions buildings, I mean, all of these things uh, we, we are now seeing in the in the Biden plan. And so I think that that's really exciting. So, I mean, I think that it's, it's kind of unfolding in a way that Debbie and I had anticipated. I mean, I think um, we, and, you know, John Kerry, he even said before going to Shanghai to meet with Xi Zhenhua that he wanted to negotiate climate change in a silo. And of course, the Chinese had been saying, well, that's completely unrealistic. I mean, look at the larger geopolitical context, and that's just not possible. And, and we have all these other things that we want to also be able 
to continue uh, conversing about with the with the United States, and we're not going to just um, yeah only only talk about climate in this vacuum. And so, I mean, I yeah, I don't think yeah, I have to talk to Debbie, so I don't want to like speak too much <laughs> and put right, words in her right. mouth. No, because, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, exactly. No, but, but I think yeah. you're, you're absolutely right that that you know it's certainly moved in that direction. I I'm surprised at the extent to which the new deal, green green new deal language has now been embraced by by the administration itself and um you know yeah exactly i mean i'm also most excited about the focus on climate justice and um and focusing uh 40 percent of the funding focused on communities of color and and those that have been traditionally disadvantaged and so i think that that's really huge and um i think one of the things that the united states is going to have to also reconcile is the need for just transitions so as the u.s starts to decarbonize and and really aggressively puts in policies to shift um, our electricity sector out of coal and away from natural gas. Uh, there are going to be um, a lot, many millions of people who will be out of jobs. And, and China is also undergoing a similar transition where they've been trying to consolidate and trying to um, shut down a lot of inefficient uh, small coal mines, for example, and steel mills. And so there have been a lot of people also that have had to, to, to shift. And so China's been grappling with this idea of a just transition and how to do that. And I think there's a lot of lessons, too, that can be shared with the United States. And that's another area of perhaps exchange and learning and also collaboration. And so China, for example, Goldwind, uh, which is one of the largest state-owned um, enterprises in China, they are now adopting a lot of the workers that have been displaced from these shutdowns in the coal and steel sectors and reskilling them to be technicians for wind turbine gearboxes, for example. And so how they're doing that, I think the U.S. also could learn a lot from. And so that's another area that I think is, is really encouraging about uh, Biden's plan for climate change. Fantastic. Hey, so one last question for you know each to, to both of you actually uh, before we move on to recommendations. What are we expecting from COP twenty six in Glasgow? I mean, China has not yet submitted its enhanced commitments. Um, a, a lot of countries haven't. Can you remind listeners of what the current NDCs are and what you're hoping you'll see ahead of Glasgow? Yeah, so for COP twenty, the the big thing this year is is what is the aggregate impact of all of the 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 new NDCs from the country, right? The, they're the nationally determined contributions, essentially the plans from each country, right? Just a reminder to listeners who aren't aren't as familiar with this, the way the Paris Agreement works is to attempt to incentivize a kind of ratchet effect. For every few years, you have a Check in on to see how we're doing. This is the stock take that Angel referenced earlier in 2018, which said we're not doing particularly well. And then a few years after that, the countries are supposed to submit new plans that are more ambitious than the previous plans. And then we do another stock take. And that's how the Paris Agreement is supposed to slowly drive us towards a solution. So this year was a big year. It was supposed to be last year uh, that the countries were, were going <laughs> to submit all their plans. But because of COVID, we uh, delayed it. And so this year... I think the big thing for every everybody is to see well what's what are all the plans that people are putting together and then there's going to be an assessment of in the aggregate where does that get us and what more needs to to be done. There there will be a lot of other discussions about specifics like there's still details to be worked out on what role does uh, do market measures um, play in the global agreement. And um, you know you you've accused me of being a closet neoliberal, but I I'm I'm. Uh, Jokingly, jokingly. Yeah, but I, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I would say I, I, I want to, us to be very cautious about over reliance on market measures in the global scheme because there's there's a way that uh, the, those schemes can sort of mask weakened ambition uh, on global uh, uh, global uh, climate action, and so very good. Yeah. Angel, last word to you before we move on. Yeah, so as of January, only less than 50 countries had actually submitted their Enhanced Ambition Paris pledges. And so that mm. there's still 150, 40 countries that, that haven't submitted. So COVID really did have a major impact in slowing down progress for this global stock take exercise that Alex mentioned. So the official global stock take for the Paris Agreement is in 2023. And so in advance, all the countries need to be submitting these plans so that then there can be this analysis done. And just as a reminder, in 20. 
2020, there's still a 29 to 32 gigaton gap between current policy efforts and where we need emissions to go in order to contain global temperature rise within 1.5 degrees Celsius. And we're already at 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So it's not a whole lot of wiggle room before we exceed that threshold. And so that's uh, incredibly critical. And COVID has had a major impact because countries are trying to see what their economic recovery plans are going to look like and how that's going to impact emissions. And so we saw that when China started to reopen after COVID, their emissions bounced back right to where they were pre-COVID levels and even went higher than in, um, in last year. So I right. think that that's really scary because um, that's the, the greatest uncertainty. We saw that there was a 7% global impact on greenhouse gas emissions due to COVID last year, but uh, and that was historic. I mean, we've never experienced that, that, that big of a drop, but we essentially need to have like a COVID-like impact on global emissions from now until 2030. And um, I just think that that's going to be really difficult if with economic recovery, governments then just bounce back up to pre-COVID levels. I think we'll just erase that 7% overnight. And so to me, that's going to be part of the critical discussion for COP26 and in the lead up is how can we actually have countries design these enhanced ambition Paris pledges, these NDCs that keep... Um, COVID recovery in mind and and trying to build in plans that that can, I think, just lock in these lower carbon and, or zero carbon development pathways so that we just don't go back to business as usual before COVID I, I just want to also give a shout out to, you know, California here is, is on the forefront of doing this. So to imagine that this is possible, right? So you can check by app where California's electricity sector is right now. So at this moment, 66% of renewables are serving California's electricity demand, right? And so you can yeah. see it's coming from 75% uh, of that is solar and then you have wind. And so, you know, it's it's not like this is a pie in the sky. That is, you know, we, we are making progress in certain places and then the rest of the world, places that are farther behind can sort of learn from places like California and other places that are are uh, ahead of the, the curve. And I think this is, you know, this is obviously difficult, but uh, it's more and more uh, feasible. You know, I want to also shout out that Angel, your paper with Deb also really emphasizes the role of subnational uh, and non-state actors. But we talked a little bit about non-state actors, and you were, you know, pointing the finger at some of the finance firms for not really, you know, being transparent enough about uh, what what their where their money is going. But um, you do uh, single out for praise a lot of uh, subnational actors, and not just. California and American states, but also Chinese provinces that you, you've, you've said are really taking the initiative. And this is also something that Xi Jinping singled out you know, in his uh, speech yesterday as well. So, you know, we're actually seeing collaboration between American states like California and Chinese provinces. Uh, this didn't, I mean, well, I'm, I'm maybe, again, this is one of my sort of trying to put the best possible spin on the Trump years. Um, that I, I, maybe I'm too optimistic here that, that they actually might have felt a little more empowered and more capable just out of necessity that they felt like they needed. They bulked up because they had to. <laughs> and maybe they can continue to gain in capability and play an even more important role going forward. Uh, now that things are great. I want to thank both of you uh, so much for taking time out in what must have been a very, very busy week for, for you both. Um, let's move on to recommendations. But first, a quick reminder that the best way that you can support the work that we do here at the Seneca Podcast is to subscribe to SupChina Access, our daily email newsletter. It is just chock full of all the news you really need on China. Seneca's been going now for a little over 11 years, and we'd love to do 11 more. Uh, we definitely need you to do your part, though, so check out SupChina Access and subscribe if you aren't already doing so on to recommendations. Angel, kick us off. What you got for us? Um, got so fun? I just finished reading a really amazing book called Blockchain Chicken Farm and Other Stories oh, of yeah. Tech in China's Countryside by Xiaowei Wang. And uh, it was it's a really great, um, it's like semi-ethnographic, and uh, sociological, and so it's looking at um, the unlikely emergence of tech in China's countryside. So how Chinese farms are now using blockchain to track chickens, and so at any time you can scan a QR code on a chicken to see what they're where they're from and what they've eaten and their diet and all these types of things. And so, uh, you know, a lot of my research is also looking at the role of technology and artificial intelligence and next generation data and policy. And so I really enjoyed reading her book on, um, yeah, these stories of, of tech in China's rural countryside. So that would be my recommendation. 
Oh, fantastic. I mean, just my, my wife will get a big kick out of that because, you know, having watched this one episode of Portlandia, she's she jokes that, you know, what organic means is that every individual bean that you buy in that bag has a name and a history. But yeah. maybe that's maybe it's true. That's right. With blockchain, that could be a reality. That could be. Yeah. The Internet of Things, man. It's transforming the universe, man. RFID tags on, like, everything, man. Anyway. All right, great recommendation. I, 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 Blockchain Chicken Farm has been recommended to me by other friends, and uh, I'm, yeah, it's definitely on my list. Well, I have Thanks. a copy. I can drop it off anytime. You can. We're yeah. so close by. I'll ride my <laughs> e-bike. So I got it. I, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Alex, man, what you got? All right, so I'm going to give two quick, more wonky recommendations and one that's not at all trying to relate it. So, so I, I, I've been uh, listening to the Environment China podcast. Anders Hovey is hosting that. So it, uh, it's a great little podcast with uh, uh, voices that you don't usually hear, and it gets into the, the, the details of on, on uh, China and the environment. And I also recommend the Twitter feed for uh, Yen Qing from Refinitiv. Uh, she mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is just really closely tracking the Chinese announcements on this from companies and from the government, and it's such a valuable Twitter feed uh, where she's putting out the Chinese documents on this. And so if you want to follow details, of that she has a great uh, twitter feed and then what's what's her twitter handle uh it's at y-a-n-q-i-n-y-q okay so, ancient yq yeah All right. um and then on a reading uh, completely not china related is uh that I, i've really enjoyed is uh, robert caro's book working uh on hmm. about his just stories about writing his books about Robert Moses and LBJ. Just really a pleasure to read and and fascinating kind of stories from the writing life. And uh, it's, it's sort of inspiring to me as an academic to try to, uh, if I could have the sort of romantic Robert Caro kind of writing life, uh, it's it's something to aspire to. Yeah, yeah. I love his LBJ stuff. I mean, it's just, I haven't actually read the... the I mean, I've, I've just always thought about Robert Moses as the villain, you know, the anti-Jane Jacobs person, and I don't know, maybe it'd be, it'd be a great dinner. I mean, Carol is just <laughs> such a masterful biographer. Yeah. I'd love to read it. That's a great recommendation. I've got two. First, a, a serious one, which is Louis Manan's new book, The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War, which I'm just, you know, maybe eight chapters into, but it's just great. It's just, I mean, it's like a, the, the kind of book I love most. So um, that's going to occupy me for several weeks probably because it's really, really long. It's super rich. It's super satisfying and detailed. The other is really frivolous but just so much fun. And if you haven't seen it already, I mean, for people like, you know, Alex, you'll, you'll catch every bit of this. Angel, you're probably too young to get all of it. But it's the Spielberg movie Ready Player One, which I would have never thought to watch but for an emphatic recommendation from one of my best friends, Drew, uh, in Madison. He, his teenage son talked him into watching it. But it's it's actually not made for, you know, these Gen Z kids. It's actually made for Gen Xers like, like me uh, who are just immersed in nerd culture, you know, from – Boyhood. I mean, I, mean, I got remember the Atari single... twenty six hundred. No, exactly. No, that have you seen? So you've seen it. I've, I've seen it. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah. so the Atari twenty six hundred. Yeah. I mean, my favorite thing in there was that uh, they, they have this magic item that they need to cast the spell to open, and the spell. And I, I right before they started saying it, I said, "I bet it's going to be." And yes, it was the charm of making from John Borman's Excalibur. That movie. It's Anal Nathrach Uthas Betu Dohel Dienve. I mean, chanted over again and over again by, you know, by Merlin in that film and then by, you know, um, Morgan Le Fay or whatever. It was just, it was, I mean, me and all my, you know, nerd D&D playing friends had memorized that from the first time we saw that film back in like 81. I actually, when, once that happened, I was like so giddy. I had to call my brother John, who was also like a nerd like me and, and just like, I can't believe it. So he started watching it, and then of course we had like this hour long conversation afterward where we just enumerated all the obscure pop culture references that that only people our age and of our level of nerddom could have possibly picked up on. But it was so fun. Uh, I totally, I it's so much. It, it exceeded my expectations so grand, grand, grandly. <laughs> anyway, um, thanks for putting me in a better mood because uh, this <laughs> seriously. I mean, climate cooperation is one thing. And I mean, and and now even believing that even a modicum of competition will be good for for the the, the planet, uh, it's it's rare to come out of a, a conversation about the climate feeling actually kind of better. But, That's uh, so true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So thanks, yeah. guys. Thanks a lot, Kaiser. It was yeah. It was thank yeah. you. All right, and Angel, let's catch up real soon in person. Yeah, that would be great. 
The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.